Andrew. Thank you. And uh, the Bible reading is from Genesis chapter 42, uh, starting at verse 1 to 28. When Jacob learned that there was grain in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you just keep looking at each other? He continued, I have heard that there is grain in Egypt. Go down there and buy some for us, so that we may live and not die. Then ten of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain from Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with the others, because he was afraid that harm might come to him. So Israel's sons were among those who went to buy grain, for there was famine in the land of Canaan also. Now Joseph was the governor of the land, the person who sold grain to all its people. So when Joseph's brothers arrived, they bowed down to him with their faces to the ground. As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognized them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. Where do you come from? he asked. From the land of Canaan, they replied, to buy food. Although Joseph recognized his brothers, they did not recognize him. Then he remembered his dreams about them and said to them, You are spies. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. No, my lord, they answered. Your servants have come to buy food. We are all the sons of one man. Your servants are honest men, not spies. No, he said to them. You have come to see where our land is unprotected. But they replied, Your servants were twelve brothers, the sons of one man, who lives in the land of Canaan. The youngest is now with our father, and one is no more. Joseph said to them, It is just as I told you, you are spies, and this is how you will be tested. As surely as Pharaoh lives, you will not leave this place unless your youngest brother comes here. Send one of your number to get your brother. The rest of you will be kept in prison so that your words may be tested to see if you are telling the truth. If you are not, then surely as Pharaoh lives, you are spies. And he put them all in custody for three days. On the third day, Joseph said to them, Do this and you will live, for I fear God. If you are honest men, let one of your brothers stay here in prison while the rest of you go and take grain back for your starving households. But you must bring your youngest brother to me, so that your words may be verified, and that you may not die. This they proceeded to do. They said to one another, Surely we are being punished because of our brother. We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we would not listen. That's why this distress has come, to, come on us. Reuben replied, Didn't I tell you not to sin against the boy? But you wouldn't listen. Now we must give an accounting for his blood. They did not realize that Joseph could understand them, since he was using an interpreter. He turned away from them and began to weep, but then came back and spoke to them again. He had Simeon taken from them and bound before their eyes. 
Joseph gave orders to fill their bags with grain, to put each man's silver back in his sack, and to give them provisions for their journey. After this was done for them, they loaded their grain on their donkeys and left. At the place where they stopped for the night, one of them opened his sack to get feed for his donkey, and he saw his silver in the mouth of his sack. My silver has been returned, he said to his brothers. Here it is in my sack. Their hearts sank, and they turned to each other trembling and said, What is this that God has done to us? Well, good morning. My name's Stephen. I'm one of the ministers here. It's great to be together again as God's people. This week I was talking to someone about how the world can be so wonderful in one moment and then in the very next moment it can be thrown into chaos. And it raises that question, how can life be so wonderful and yet so awful? It raises that age-old question, why does God allow suffering? And this is a question that we can wrestle with abstractly. You know, we can think that we've got it settled in our heads, but then suddenly when facing personal suffering, we can find ourselves flattened. In 1940, C.S. Lewis wrote a book that addresses the logic of this question called The Problem of Pain. But 20 years later, after his wife had died from cancer, he wrote a very different book that addressed not the logic of of the question, but the actual experience of it. He wrote a book called A Grief Observed. And initially, he didn't even publish it under his own name. He published it under a pseudonym. In this book, at times he comes close to despair, though in the end, he throws himself on the same conclusions as his previous book. Probably nothing challenges our faith as much as personal suffering. But it's also true that probably nothing grows our faith as much as personal suffering. And the reality is that it's not a question of if we will suffer in this life. It's a question of when we will suffer. But for some reason we miss that. How is it? I mean, if you're familiar with the Bible... If you think about every single character in the Bible, I can't think of one who doesn't suffer. From Moses to Ruth to Jesus to Paul, they all suffer. Why is it that we can know that, but still when we're faced with our own suffering, we can still think something unusual, something outside of God's plan is happening to us? This world is is messed up. Suffering is a real part of what it means to live in this world. And so the real question is not, must we suffer? But how should we think about it? How should we face it? And can we trust God when we just can't find its meaning? When it comes to our personal experience of suffering, that's the big question right there. When we don't know what's going on, Can we trust God? Now, I reckon we know the answer. We know the answer logically is yes, but I'm asking this question at a different level. I'm asking, when we suffer, will we trust God? Now, it's probably impossible to answer that question ahead of time, I reckon. But there are some things that we see in in the Bible passage 
that was read and we're going to look at about five and a half chapters today, there's some things that we see in this story that really help us. Today, as Scott said, we return to our series looking at the very first family that God chose to be his people. Through these people, God was promising to get rid of suffering, actually, to get rid of this, the mess in this world forever through them for good. But what we've seen in this family, if you cast your mind back, is that there's so much mess so close to home. And because of this mess, there's an awful lot of personal suffering that happens to them. We started with Abraham way back in the Easter holidays. And then in the winter holidays, we moved on to Isaac, Abraham's son, and Jacob, his grandson. And then in the spring holidays, just gone by, we started to look at Joseph. As we've been reminded of, Joseph's brothers sold him into slavery out of jealousy because he was his dad's favourite. We've seen that this is a story of personal suffering. For 13 long years, Joseph was either a slave in Egypt or a prisoner in Egypt. 13 years. But we also saw last time that God didn't abandon him, but he raised him up to be second in command in Egypt. And God, as we saw in the kids' video as well, God was going to use Joseph to save the world from a devastating famine. But while things have worked out well for Joseph in some ways, the story's not over yet, not by a long shot. Because Joseph is still in Egypt and God's people are in Canaan. They think he's dead and the sins of the past haven't been dealt with. And until they're dealt with, Their future and the future of the world, the blessing of the world, it's in danger. They're a divided family. Jacob, their father, is crippled with sorrow and self-pity. And yet he keeps showing favoritism. And his sons have put jealousy and, and greed over even human life. And they're haunted with guilt, though They've buried the wrongs of the past under a mass of lies. And this family, they're not just in danger of falling apart because they're dysfunctional. Their very existence is in danger because they're about to be hit by a seven-year-long famine. And their only hope for survival is to come under Joseph's care. But while ever the sins of the past are not dealt with, there's no chance of that happening. But as we've seen in this series time and time again, God is the God who does an extraordinary work in the lives of very ordinary people. We saw that with Jacob and we see it again today. Today we get to see some of the ways that God works in the life of his people. We see some real examples of of people putting their trust in God even in the face of their own personal suffering and their own personal experiences of it. And we get to see the difference that their faith in God in personal suffering, the difference it makes to them and to the world. One of the ways that God works in the life of his people is through hardship. And this is our first point today. God works through hardship. In this case, God works through a famine. Now, last time we were in this series, we saw how God used Joseph to interpret Pharaoh's dreams and then to store up grain for seven years. Now the famine's hit not just Egypt, but it's hit Canaan as well. And so Jacob sends 10 of his sons down to Egypt 
to buy grain. But notice that he doesn't send all 11 of his sons. Jacob, he's still playing favourites. And now that Joseph's gone, his new favourite is Rachel's other son, Benjamin. Benjamin's probably about 22 years old at this point, so he's not a tiny kid or anything like that. So when the brothers get to Egypt to buy grain, they come face to face with Joseph. And as we heard read, he recognises them, but they don't recognise him. He was 17 when they last saw him. Now he's 38. He would have had a beard back then, but now he's clean-shaven and dressed like an Egyptian. He probably walks like an Egyptian as well, in case you were wondering. But because they don't recognise him, Joseph, he has the power of knowledge over them. Now, this is on top of the power that he already has over them anyway. He can give them grain or not. He can have them killed with a word. But here he holds a different kind of power over the situation because he knows what's going on and they don't. He knows who they are. He knows that this famine is going to last for five more years and they don't. And so as the story continues, we wonder what is Joseph going to do with this power that he has over them? And we see what he does initially in verse 7. We read, As soon as Joseph saw his brothers, he recognised them, but he pretended to be a stranger and spoke harshly to them. He rattles them and he accuses them of being spies. Now that might sound a bit far-fetched to us. Where's, Where's he pulling that from? It might even sound to you like Joseph is a bit unhinged by seeing his brothers and he's sort of clutching at straws here. In fact, you could read the whole, the whole story that unfolds, thinking that Joseph is, is a bit of a maniac. He seems a bit cruel. He seems a bit out of control. One minute he's speaking harshly. The next minute he's imprisoning, imprisoning them. Then he's weeping. He could sound like a man in crisis, close to a breakdown, acting irrationally. But to read things that way would be to totally miss what's going on. Look at verse 8. Although Joseph recognised his brothers, they did not recognise him. Then he remembered his dreams. Do you remember his dreams? Do you remember that over 20 years earlier he dreamed of 11 sheaths of grain gathering around his sheath and bowing down before him? Joseph is not unhinged here. What he dreamed of is coming true. Or is it? How many brothers are there bowing down before him? There's only 10. Whereas in Joseph's dream, all 11 of them were bowing down. (coughs) Joseph's not unhinged here. Joseph is a master administrator, a master strategist. And just like he's done in the past For Pharaoh and for others, he uses his dreams as a template for the future. Joseph has quickly devised a plan to ensure that his 11th brother joins the others standing there before him because that's what his dream indicated. Accusing them of being spies, it might sound far-fetched to us, but when the entire known world is facing famine, 
and knows that Egypt alone has grain spread over multiple places, it's actually a real threat that spies could be sent to scope out vulnerabilities to plan an attack. And these foreigners, all speaking the same language, all claiming to be one family, could have looked pretty suspicious. And Joseph, he capitalises on that. And he gives them a taste of their own medicine. Twenty years earlier, they imprisoned him. Now he imprisons them all and he tells them that all but one of them are going to stay in prison until the 11th brother joins them. At this point in the story, it's not at all clear whether Joseph is going to use the power he has over his brothers for good or for evil. Is he going to use it in a self-seeking way to get revenge? Or is he going to use it for good? And this brings us to our second point. God works through both the faithfulness and the failure of people. God works through the faithfulness and the failure of people. We get the first taste that Joseph is actually not acting purely out of vengeance in verse 18. After three days, Joseph reveals a different plan to his brothers. He says then that he'll just keep one of them imprisoned and he'll allow the rest to return so that their families don't starve to death. Now, it's at this point that we start to see the effects of God's work on the brothers. They start to realise that the past is catching up with them. Look at verse 21. They said to one another, Surely we're being punished because of our brother, We saw how distressed he was when he pleaded with us for his life, but we wouldn't listen. That's why this distress has come on us. Now, Joseph can hear this, because even though he's speaking through an interpreter, he understands their language. And he's not out of control, he's not unhinged, but he's also not cold and dispassionate. Seeing this first step in their hearts softening, it floods him with emotion. And he has to turn aside and to weep. If you've ever been deeply hurt by someone, that moment when they finally acknowledge to themselves the wrong that they've done you, that can be an extremely emotional experience. And it's just the first step, the very first step in many steps that are needed for reconciliation. Until someone is willing to admit that they've done wrong... Reconciliation can't even get off the ground. So we see that Joseph, he picks out Simeon. And for dramatic effect, he has him bound and taken away in front of them. Now, the brothers, the brothers they've acknowledged to themselves that they've done wrong, which is a good first step. But so what? They haven't necessarily turned away from the wrong. They haven't necessarily changed. Repentance, true repentance, is not simply recognising wrong. Repentance is turning away from that wrong. It's giving up, trying to justify it. It's stopping trying to downplay it to ourselves and to others. It's accepting the consequences for it, whatever those consequences may be. And then it's not returning to that wrong again. 
the brothers, they've taken one step towards reconciliation, but they've still got a whole lot of journeying still to go. Now, Joseph, the mastermind strategist at this point, sets in motion a plan to have Benjamin brought to Egypt. And he does this because of his, his dream of all the brothers bowing down. But he also does it to test the brothers. Notice that back in verse 15, he, he told them that he would test them to see if they were spies. But really, he's testing them to see so much more than that. He's testing them to see if, the, if they are the same brothers who abandoned him as a slave in Egypt for money. He's testing them to see if they're the same brothers who callously abandoned their father into sorrow and heartbreak. And this is Joseph's test. Will they now abandon Simeon in Egypt? In the past, they abandoned Joseph to a life of slavery in Egypt for money, for silver. And so now Joseph puts all their silver back into their sacks. And this has a double effect. It raises the possibility that they might just keep the money and abandon Simeon. And it also increases the stakes in terms of danger. Should they ever show their faces in Egypt again, they'll face being accused not just of being spies, but of being thieves as well. That very first night on their return journey, one of the brothers opens up his sacks and he discovers the money and he's terrified. And they... they, All are terrified and they interpret this disaster as coming from the hand of God. And they're right. Behind the scenes, God is using Joseph's testing on them to do a work in them, to change them. But of course, they can't fully see that yet. They think this is just God giving them, paying them back what they deserve. So they don't return to Joseph with the money. They keep going onwards to home. And when they arrive, they explain the situation to Jacob. They explain that they need to take Benjamin back to Egypt so that they can get Simeon back. But Jacob outright refuses. And he even blames them for what's happened, almost as if he suspects them of having done wrong in the past. Look at what he says in verse 36. You have deprived me of my children. Joseph is no more and Simeon is no more. And now you want to take Benjamin. And while on the one hand, Jacob's response, his grief is understandable. Unfortunately, he's not stepping up as the leader that his family needs. In his self-pity, he would leave Simeon to rot in Egypt. He would continue to show favoritism to Rachel's children, refusing to see the devastation that it causes. And despite the clear ways that God has fought for him in the past, he's still not a man of strong faith. He looks at life's circumstances and instead of trusting God, he says in verse 36, everything is against me. Jacob, in his personal experience of suffering, is a man who is struggling to trust God. But God's work in him and God's work in this family is not done yet. Although the problems run deep, God's commitment to them runs even deeper. God allows the the famine to continue. And hunger sometimes is a more powerful force for change than reason. 
So eventually, Jacob tries to send the sons back to Egypt to get more grain when they've run out. But Judah respectfully refuses Jacob. He says they're not going to go unless he allows Benjamin to go as well. Reuben, who's the oldest son, he'd already tried to convince his father to let them return with Benjamin. Listen to his attempt back in 42 verse 37. Reuben said to his father, You may put to death both of my sons if I do not bring him back to you. Entrust him to my care and I'll bring him back. Would you trust your kids with someone like that? I don't even think I'd trust my chooks with someone like that. Reuben is an overconfident coward. He offers his son's lives and Jacob wisely refuses. But look at what Judah now offers as a guarantee in chapter 43, verse 9. He says, I myself will guarantee his safety. You can hold me personally responsible for him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him here before you, I will bear the blame before you all my life. Judah offers his very self as surety, as a guarantee. And again, respectfully, he talks sense into Jacob. Jacob realises he doesn't have a choice. And so he does what he should have done all along. He surrenders his sons to God, the God who knows all things. And he surrenders his own destiny to God, something that's easier to say than to do. And he says in verse 14, As for me, if I'm bereaved, I'm bereaved. So the 11 brothers, they get back to Egypt as quickly as they can. And they come before Joseph and they're hoping for a really quick resolution. They want to get the grain, get their brother Simeon and then get out of Egypt as fast as they can. But Joseph, the mastermind, throws them another curveball. He invites them for lunch, which really spooks them, actually. They think he wants to harm them. And in their fear, they try to explain to Joseph's steward about the silver in the sack and they return it. And in doing so, they pass Joseph's first test. They've returned for Simeon. They haven't abandoned him in Egypt. And they don't put money above people. And so at this point, the steward restores Simeon to them. And he explains to them that his master actually has their good at heart. He says in Genesis 43, verse 23, it's all right. Literally, he says, peace, shalom, don't be afraid. Your God, the God of your father, has given you the treasure in your sacks. I received your silver. See, Joseph's intentions really are peace, shalom. The brothers, they're given hospitality, they're given water and food for the animals and water for their feet, and they're given lunch with Joseph. Joseph, he's not an unhinged maniac wanting to psychologically torture them. He really does want to be reconciled with them. But he's not yet ready to reveal himself to them. He has the the power of knowledge over them. But he's not yet convinced that he can trust them with his true self. Reconciliation's like that. For full reconciliation to come about, there needs to be, in the end, honesty and, and vulnerability. But when you've been hurt by untrustworthy people, there's an impasse. 
And these people, these brothers, really are untrustworthy people. It's useless trusting someone who's untrustworthy. It's not a wise thing to do. It's not a noble thing to do. It's not a godly thing to do. Last week, you might remember that Dave spoke to us about forgiving one another. It really is really important to separate out forgiveness from reconciliation. We can long for reconciliation. And we can even forgive others as far as it's up to us. But until we reach that point where we can give ourselves, entrust ourselves to someone, we can't fully experience reconciliation. And the reality is that some people remain untrustworthy and so full reconciliation is just not possible. Joseph, he's not yet convinced that full reconciliation is possible. His brothers, they've been faithful to Simeon, that's true. But are they going to be faithful to Benjamin? Or will they still be driven by jealousy? So Joseph creates another test for them. At lunch, Benjamin receives five times as much food as the rest of them. Joseph, he's creating a situation that that throws in their faces the favouritism that Benjamin has always received all of his life and now seems to be receiving even here in Egypt. He's provoking them to see how they'll respond. Now remember, they don't know that Joseph can understand their language, including the swear words. But again, they seem to pass the test. They eat and drink freely together as brothers. And so at this point, Joseph turns up the heat massively for his final test. He plants in Benjamin's sack his silver cup. And then after they've gone, he sends his steward to chase them down and accuse them of stealing it. And the men, they're so confident that they don't have it that they stupidly stupidly say that if one of them is found to have it, they can be put to death and all the rest of them will become slaves in Egypt. But the steward, the steward is fully in on what Joseph is doing here in this test. And so he softens what they say in chapter 44, verse 10. He says, very well then, let it be as you say, whoever is found to have it will become my slave. The rest of you will be free to go, will be free from blame. Do you see what Joseph is doing with this test? Again, he recreates the situations where the brothers are free to go, but this time they'll be abandoning their dad's favourite son to a life of slavery in Egypt. Joseph has brilliantly dug up the past yet again to test them. And at least to start with, it it seems the the, um, the brothers are changed people. Because when Benjamin is found to have the cup, they all tear their clothes in grief. They all load up their donkeys and they all return to Joseph. It seems that through this whole ordeal of of famine and testing in Egypt, that God has brought this broken, dysfunctional family together. And this brings us to our final point. God transforms ordinary people extraordinarily. Look at what happens. When they get back in front of Joseph, they don't bow down before him. They throw themselves down at his feet. 
And Judah, who you've probably noticed, has emerged as a leader in his family over this experience. He says in verse 16 to Joseph, What can we say to my Lord? What can we say? How can we prove our innocence? Judah sees that they look guilty, even though he knows that they're not. But then he says, God has uncovered your servant's guilt. Now, obviously, he's not talking about the cup here. He knows they're not guilty of that. Judah is talking about the guilt from the past that's been dug up. He's talking about their collective guilt in what they did to Joseph all those years earlier. And notice, now they're not just admitting it to themselves, what they did wrong. But with Judah as their spokesman, they're freely admitting it even to this stranger. And their changed hearts actually even deeper than that. Because they're now admitting that they deserve punishment for what they've done. Through their spokesman, Judah, they say in verse 16, We are now my Lord's slaves, we ourselves and the one who was found to have the cup. This is a radical change of heart. But Joseph, he's not going to allow it. He tells them that they're free to go and only Benjamin must stay. He's given them every opportunity possible to abandon Benjamin in slavery like they abandoned him. And this is their great moment of testing. Will they do it again? This time, surely it's more understandable. They've done all they can to try and save Benjamin. But Judah thinks that there's one more thing that can be tried. He steps forward and in the longest speech so far in the Bible, he appeals to Joseph for mercy. And the basis of his appeal comes from his compassion for his father. He appeals even on the grounds that this son, Benjamin, is his father's favourite. His compassion is able to look past the failures of his father, Jacob, in showing favouritism and still feel empathy for him. And at the conclusion of his speech, he offers himself to be Joseph's slave in the place of Benjamin. Verse 33, Please let your servant remain here as my Lord's slave in place of the boy, and let the boy return with his brothers. It's hard to believe it's possible. This is the same person whose idea it was to sell Joseph into slavery in the first place. That this brother would now offer himself in the place of Benjamin. This brother who treated his father so callously 20 years earlier could now be so compassionate. You probably don't remember, but we saw the character of this man last time we were in this series with his daughter-in-law, Tamar. But he's been changed. Living with the guilt of the past. Watching his father's suffering. The loss of his own two sons. The famine. And now Joseph's harsh dealings with them digging up the past. Through it all, behind the scenes, God has shaped him into the kind of leader that God considers worthy to lead his people. Someone who will lay down his life in the service of others. Not a leader who will expect people to serve him. 
You know, from this moment on, Judah is seen as the leader of God's people to succeed Jacob. And from him will come the kings of Israel, and eventually from him will come the king of all kings, the servant king Jesus, who lays down his life to end the suffering and mess of this world for good. But back to our story, because it's at this point that Joseph, he's seen everything he needs to see. And with this act of self-sacrifice, he lets go of, of the power that he has over them. He exchanges power for intimacy and he weeps loudly in front of them. He can trust them now and so he can risk reconciliation now. That's where Joseph is at. But his brothers, they're a few steps behind him. They're stunned and they're terrified. They're crippled with fear because they realize that their lives are in the hands of this person that they've treated so badly. And it takes them a while to catch up, not just as to who Joseph really is, but to realize that this whole time Joseph has not been messing with them out of vengeance, but he's been working things out to pave the way for real reconciliation. And so listen to what Joseph tells them to reassure them. He tells them to come close and then he says, Do not be distressed and do not be angry with yourselves for selling me here. Can you believe he could say that? Don't be angry with yourselves. And he tells us why he can say it. Because it was to save lives that God sent me ahead of you. For two years now there's been famine in the land and for the next five years there'll be no ploughing and reaping. But God sent me ahead of you to preserve for you a remnant on earth and to save your lives by a great deliverance. So then, it was not you who sent me here, but God. There's no doubt. God sent him there. Joseph is a man of astounding faith. Even in the face of personal suffering and sadness, Joseph knows that God knows what he's doing. Joseph has good reason to trust God, even through his personal suffering. And the result of his trust in God brings about something remarkable and something beautiful. Because he trusts God, he's able not to seek vengeance on his brothers. Instead, he's able to seek reconciliation and their good And he's able to forgive them. And because he trusts God, he's in a position to save God's people from starvation and extinction. Joseph tells his brothers to go back to Canaan and to get their father and their families and to come back to Egypt because the famine's going to continue for another five years. And we'll see how that plays out next week. But if there hadn't been reconciliation then there wouldn't have been salvation for this family. They needed Joseph to save them from the famine. And behind the scenes, at every turn, God is in control, overseeing the events, softening hard hearts to reconcile his people and to save them from famine. So what should we take away from this today? Have we just learnt some lessons about reconciliation? Well, we have actually, and and I wouldn't despise that for a minute, for a second. Joseph's story here is full of all sorts of wisdom for us, 
on reconciliation, especially in dysfunctional families, but all sorts of reconciliation. We've seen things like the need to trust God and and surrender our destiny to Him, surrender vengeance to Him even. We've seen the need to fully own up to our sin, to repent of it and to accept its consequences. We've seen the need to look past the failures of others and yet to still feel compassion for them. We've seen the the need to be willing to offer ourselves to save another. The need to pursue peace, to speak tenderly. And we've seen the need to give up power for the sake of intimacy. There are some really helpful lessons about reconciliation in here. But Joseph's story, like Jacob's story, like Abraham's story, they are really God's story. They are really stories about the way that God chooses to work amongst his people. So what does this story tell us about God and his work? It tells us, first of all, that God can be trusted, even when we don't know what's going on. And that's the point of this story. Joseph, in this story, he kind of mirrors the place God has in the greater story of Genesis and in the greater story of the world. In the story, Joseph knows what's happening, but his brothers don't. How much more so in the story of this world? God knows what's happening. God knows why. But most of the time, we've got no idea. In the story, Joseph's actions can seem random and and unhinged to the brothers, but they were very deliberate. And again, so much more the case with God and our world. God's actions can seem random to us, but they're not. God is in control and nothing can happen outside of his control. In the story, Joseph at times could have appeared vengeful or spiteful, but actually he is displaying a severe mercy for the good of his brothers. And again, How much more so the case with God and this world? God's mercy can be severe, but it is for our own good, even if we can't see it. And in the story, Joseph doesn't act coldly or dispassionately. He feels deeply for his family. And again, it is so much more so the case with our God. God is deeply offended by our rejection of him. Jesus weeps over the loss of people. The Holy Spirit is grieved by our hardness of heart. God is passionate about reconciling people to himself. You know, God doesn't change. And in his work in Joseph and Judah, we see his character. And in a sense, both Joseph and Judah They point to God's character, which we see in Jesus. Joseph, the faithful son who seeks to reconcile the people of God. Judah, the leader who offers his life in the place of his brother. At their best, they point to Jesus, who reconciles people to God by offering his own life in our place. God doesn't change, but he does change us. At the beginning, I asked the question, can we still trust God in our own personal suffering? Will we trust God? 
And this life is guaranteed to, to send hard things our way. But God works through hardship. God works through both the faithfulness and the failures of people. God changes ordinary people extraordinarily. Will you trust him as he does his work in you? Will you trust him as he does his work through you as well? Let me pray. Father, we thank you that you are a God who we can trust. A God who is completely in control. So that even when we don't understand what you're doing, even in our own personal experience of suffering, when we can't know, we can know that you are good, you have a plan, and you are bringing about something beautiful and remarkable. Lord, we thank you that we can know this even more clearly than Joseph because we can look back at your son on the cross and know that you have our good interests at heart, that in his suffering and dying in our place, that we can be confident that he will bring about a world where suffering will be ended for all eternity. And Lord, we long for that day. Help us to trust you as you work in our lives, changing us, and as you work through us in the lives of others. We pray this in Jesus' name.